It's actually not that hard to write about being five years old and on the run from violence, being five years old and witnessing people getting beat nearly to death in front of you, five years old and escaping a cult, because I didn't make any of those choices. You know, it was harder to write about, you know, how I was sort of made into my mom's caretaker. It was harder to write about the ways I messed up relationships as I got older. These things, they have some shame for me. And so, and it, and it pierces that veneer, that sort of like, that kid's going to be president kind of part of my head that wanted to. And I think we all kind of invent ourselves in a certain respect. And so to just, this book was in many ways, this unmasking, it was sort of like, well, I invented this guy uh, to deal with the world. Who's like this Superman. Um, and, you know, it's not really real. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm scared a lot of the time and I'm, I have a really, really harsh on myself and there's a lot of anxiety in there and it's a hard way to live and it comes from these things. So all those things, yeah, they were, they were very, very hard to write about. Welcome to, and then everything changed a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Mikhail Jolet, frontman of the indie band, The Airborne Toxic Event, and author of the new memoir, Hollywood Park. Jolet's parents were part of the Sinanon cult, and he spent his early years there in an orphanage. His mother later took custody of he and his brother, but that arrangement proved as harmful to the boys, if not worse. Eventually, his father and stepmom, Bonnie, became the brothers' new family and offered them the home they had longed for. But the legacy of abuse and absence in their earlier years took its toll, and Jolet spent years undoing that damage. Hollywood Park is his story. Hi, Mikkel. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm good. And my name is pronounced Ronit, which rhymes with so neat um yeah i appreciate the like fellow have to explain to people name pronunciation <laughs> thing yes my whole life right you yeah too? i always have to say it's miguel with a k they seem to understand yes. that i get a lot of like mikhail's and mikhail's <laughs> because my whole life i was born in israel and in israel my parents lived there for some years and then I was raised mostly in New York. But uh-huh. in Israel, it's like Jennifer. Ronit at the time yeah. was like Jennifer. But here it's terrible. Terrible. And nobody gets it. Nobody gets it. I mean, my sister's name is Donna, but she spells it like Donna. Yeah. <laughs> How do you go from Ronit to Donna? That's like, this is my son, Ishmael and Todd. Uh, yep. Um, and my parents thought, I guess, we were going to live in Israel our whole lives, but then they, got divorced and she joined a cult. So I think you know hey. a little bit. Yeah, right? Sounds like we have a lot in common. We have so much in common. <laughs> there's and cult, uh, There's the tribe. No, I know. I was like, uh, I don't know how old your kids are, but when my kids were in actual school, they had this like little C sign that they would tap on their chest for connection every time someone said something they felt was like them. So while I was reading your memoir, like C, 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 connect, connect. <laughs> um, so yeah. So should we start? Let's start. Let's go. Okay, good, good, good. So I want to, I'm curious, like you've been thinking about your story your whole life, I imagine, and you're a singer and you're a songwriter, but when, when did you think that maybe you needed to write the memoir? Well, this memoir, I I didn't really set out to write. I I set out to write something else. I'd read 
uh, Between the World and Me. And uh-huh. I loved it. This is like five years ago. And I, th- I love the idea that he was writing a letter to his son. I mean, obviously it's a different topic, but in addition to all sort of the great insights of that book, I just love the rhetorical, the way he frames it. It's just, there's so much empathy. Uh, and I, th- I think he's probably the most important intellectual of our day, Ta-Nehisi Coates. But so I think I set out to write something original. I think my, my initial note was something about dad, 30,000 words long, race, class, America, prison system. I think that was- Oh, wow, was wow. I, I set out this whole other sort of thing and then I, I started reading, well, I was like, well, because I, I read mostly novels and I was like, well, I'll read some memoirs. And so I, I read a bunch of memoirs and then I sort of, um, in the process of deciding to write mine, I, I started it six different times in six different voices, just kind of searching around for, you know, something that felt alive, something that felt, you know, I wasn't sure which perspective to write from. And I'd written one that was like that sort of elegiac, I'm 40, looking back at my life, here are the lessons I've learned kind of way. Which I think it's a very respectable way to write a memoir. And uh, I wrote one that was like absurdist. It was like the still life with woodpecker type thing about like, and I think the opening paragraph was about like Beyonce and lemonade and Twitter. And it made all these jokes about biochemistry. And then I was like, okay, I don't know. And then, um, and then I wrote one that was just from uh, my perspective as a child uh, on the day we left Synanon, I, and I just kind of set it aside. I, I wrote it the first chapter, like I said, in these different voices. And, and then a few weeks later, I went back and I said, oh, that's the book. Mm, mm-hmm. That's the book I want to read as a reader, not even just as a writer. Re- like, forget what I want to write because it's actually a much harder book to write. But I was like, just as a reader, this is what I want. I want to know how this story ends. Yeah. And I think that's a really good way to approach it because when I think about what I want to write and the projects I'm interested in myself, it is what I would want to find out there to read. And so that is an interesting, that is an interesting choice you made too, because you very obviously go from more of a childlike perspective, the child's view for the early chapters, and then it changes. And so did that just happen naturally or did you make a conscious effort to evolve the voice or to keep it small? Yeah. So um, about halfway through, I realized that that's what I was doing um, and uh, that I was that I was changing voices as I got older to match the tone. Um, and then uh, I'd already written an ending and I think I realized, oh, I need to do this four different times. Um, so I, I, I had written, I think I deleted about 60,000 words of a sort of different ending, different third act, whatever. And then went back and wrote, um, everything from, so, and then also tightened it up everything. So there's four voices, one for each of the four sections. Each section has its own, you know, grammar, its, its own sentence structure, its own, uh, vocabulary. Um, and you know, it was, it was hard. I had to do all these exercises to kind of get into the voice, uh, and think through what the voice was. I couldn't just sit down and write. And then what was great is by the end, it's just kind of my adult writing voice. Um, there's like these really long and florid sort of sentences. And I think it starts extremely like, like the opening sentence of like the fourth section I thought was particularly florid. And I thought like, wow, well, it was just, I felt like I could stretch. It was just like, I'd been Mm -hmm. kind of limiting my, and I was like, now I can run, you know, but then there was something also that drives creativity. It's like writing a sonnet, like putting a, putting a restriction on a form tends to drive creativity in a way that you don't expect. And I thought that happened a lot yes, during yes, the yes. writing of the book. Like to have a little bit of a structure as sort of a jumping off place, sort of like a frame, and then you can kind of stretch around and move within it. Well, yeah, it imposes a, a structure that I wouldn't have chosen. And that sort of causes creativity that I wouldn't have thought of. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, yeah, I, I, I think about halfway through is when I made that choice. So for listeners who haven't read your book yet or may not be as familiar, uh, your parents basically raised you in your early years in Synanon, right? Yeah, well, I would, I'd say they wouldn't, they, they didn't raise you. me. Yeah. <laughs> they put me in an orphanage. Yeah. And, and so can you maybe in like your own words, give the little elevator slash, you know, like the elevator pitch on, on your, your life so that we can then open it up? Yeah. Um, so uh, the book, I think, I, I feel like if you read the press about the book, it, it seems like it's a book about a cult, um, but there's really only one scene in a cult. Um, and I think that there's just these sort of otherizing uh, parts of my story uh, that people have grasped onto when describing it, which isn't really what the book's about. So there's a there's the presence of the cult. There's the fact that my father was a heroin addict that he's in prison. That we we're, you know, uh, had to raise our own food, uh, rabbits and you know vegetables, whatever to eat, and that we grew up um, without a lot of money. Uh, but I feel like it's more of a book about childhood, and then sort of, you know, just kind of a, a book that. Um, is trying to capture the world of a child. In this case, you know, a couple, my brother and I, you know, traumatized children who had left a cult and were trying to make sense of the world outside. But really it's about the search for family. Like we, we, we lived in an orphanage until, uh, for, for a long time. And then we escaped with this woman we didn't know very well. And then the story really starts there. And then the story is sort of about piecing together what the world is, what family is, and then eventually making my own choices um, as to become the person in some ways you could say like the person I invented to deal with all this sort of trauma. And then, uh, later in life deciding that that person, uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't real and, and that I needed to uninvent that person and instead try to find some sort of, um, the person beneath it, uh, so that I could, you know, get the thing I really wanted, which was to have a family, to have a family of my own, to have children and a wife and to be somebody who could, you know, participate and, and be a, be a good member of that family uh, without always falling back on, you know, the lessons that the trauma had taught him. Right. And I feel like that's, that, that is always the sticking point for me because I feel like the, the weapons or the armor you develop and, and not just for me, for people I've talked to, especially on the podcast, what you learn to do to survive is often what you have to dismantle to really live later. It's absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that for me, at least, because I have a, a similar, a similar background in some ways to you, I feel personally that one of the legacies of parents who, who give up or leave their kids is that the kids, at least I like doubted that I was good enough to stick around for. Did you feel like you experienced that too? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things you learn, you know, in therapy. I certainly learned later on in therapy is that children experience loneliness, like shame that they think that the reason that they're not being held or comforted or, uh, you know, all the different ways that if you, if you grow up as a child of neglect in particular, it's a particular type of abuse. Um, you, th there's a part of you that, that thinks it's cause you're basically like too gross to touch. That's that there's a part of you that actually believes that. And, and it's not really a logical part of you. It's more just kind of this deeply ingrained sense that there's something deeply wrong with you that isn't deeply wrong with others. And it causes you to do everything from, you know, Freud's old joke, you don't want to be part of a club that would have you as a member. So you question people who would choose you. And then you question people who don't choose you. And then you need people because you don't want to be alone. And then you're scared of people because you don't want to need them because you think they're going to leave. And all these things, you know, um, happen. It's all this whole sort of cluster of behaviors and stuff. It's all called an attachment disorder. I think I was first diagnosed with that when I was like 19. 
Uh, and then I lived with it for a long time, just kind of knowing, oh, that's my attachment disorder. <laughs> it was like having a pet. Like, yeah, exactly. Here it is. <laughs> Here it is. I didn't know what to do with it. It's like, here's this dog. It's going to bite you. I remember explaining this to like girlfriends because I was also something of a seromonogamist, which I know doesn't really make sense, but that's just well, how it played out. You were me. looking for something and you knew you wanted it, but it wasn't that easy to do. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think I, you know, something about the way I was raised or my sort of makeup is, yeah, I'm just, I was, I was always just kind of into love, if that makes sense. I wasn't really into like being alone and being a player. I was more just like, I was in it for like the, the true love of it all. Yeah. You know, I was real hard in my sleeve kind of believer, romantic a kid. A poet. At the same time as I was just an absolute fuck up in relationships. Right. So it's like, it's, they both existed simultaneously and I knew it and I knew it, but no one told me how to deal with it. So a lot of the book is me, you know, making these mistakes and then trying to figure out what to do and eventually realizing, you know, that I had to change. And, and that's a hard thing to realize when you're a kid of abuse, because it's like, you know, you carry around these wounds and, and they happen to you at such a tender age when you're very clearly a victim. And then as an adult, you have to face it and you have to be like, I am not a victim anymore. I am now the captain of this ship and it's going to sink or, or, or go where it needs to go based on what I do. And that's a hard thing to admit. You know, that you've got to face your own flaws when you feel like your flaws are the result of someone else hurting you at a time when you're very fragile. Do you feel that you have to remind yourself sometimes, do you fall back into uh, behavior where you think about yourself as unlovable or is it hard for you sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, (laughs) my running joke is just like... um, uh, if uh, if ever there's any criticism of anything that I've done, whether it's my a record or a book, although the book I haven't really gotten much criticism, but let's just say the book in your is music fabulous, Mikhail. Oh, see, thank you. Now you're speaking <laughs> my language. Um, the, like there's a um, the joke is like you think you hate me, right? <laughs> right. Wait, you see how much I hate me? You could never compete <laughs> with the voice in my head ever. <laughs> It's just all day long. Like, you're a fuck up, Mikhail. You're a fuck up. Why are you such a fuck up? Stop fucking up. You're horrible. <laughs> Everyone hates you and they should hate you because you're hateable. And that's because you're a fuck up. And it's just endless. But that's and what I'm saying. Like, that's the legacy, right? And that's why these wounds from childhood. And I, I really, I mean, obviously, like, at least for me, I don't walk around with this language. It's, I'm not a victim. I, and I hear that you're not a victim. But there's this part of evolution when you have to go there emotionally, where you actually have to go back, kind of, I feel, and scoop up that little kid and totally give that kid the time it it he or she needs to to understand that you understand before you can get better and it's it's kind of a revelation i think when you suddenly realize that the framing you had for your whole childhood is different and it wasn't your fault totally 100% that that you it like as a child you are a victim as an adult you're you sort of um you may have once been a victim but at this point it's your it's your building you can choose to make yeah. it up to fire code or not yes. but if you don't it's going to burn down so it's your choice I and mean, you can be like yeah they constructed this building so it's vulnerable to fire yep totally now what are you going to do you're going to let it burn down or are you going to fix it yeah it's a pain in the ass yeah you have to do more work than other people yeah but it's the only building you got. So, you know, act accordingly. Yeah. So then as a father yourself, what's your approach to parenting? How, how is your, how has your childhood informed your parenting? 
Well, I'd say that I, I always thought I'd be a good dad. I, I had a really good father. That despite all of this, my dad was just, he, he gave me a great playbook. And and also my mom, Bonnie, who's my stepmom, but we don't really use the S word in our family. Yeah. <laughs> she's been with me since I was six months old in one form or another, because she was my demonstrator, which was my caretaker when I was in the orphanage. So we had a special relationship even then. And then she ended up with my dad years later. So I, I feel like That's those like a two- blessing. Yeah, they're just wonderful parents. And there's a big family. My dad's got this big Italian family that just wanted to squeeze our cheeks and love on us. And, you know, Bonnie, my mom, Bonnie, you know, it's a big Jewish family that just want to squeeze our cheeks and love on us. And I was so close with my my grandparents. And I guess I just, I you know, I felt like I had that part down. I, I think the part that I struggled with was was how to be, how to stick around long enough to be a husband. Like I, I kind of knew I'd be a good dad, and and I, I you know, I think it, I think I'm a pretty good dad. Um, but <laughs> I, I think I, I, I try to be anyway. I'm not a perfect father, but like you know, I take a lot of joy in my kids, and I'm very affectionate with them, and try to establish boundaries that are age appropriate, and spend a lot of time just kind of I don't know, loving up on them and doing things that they enjoy, and they're my top priority in the world, and all the things I think that I, I learned from my dad and Bonnie, and so. That I had down, I think the part I, you know, I spent five years in therapy to just figure out how to not be ruled by my fears that uh, around relationships so that I could have a stable enough relationship. Uh, Because it's hard to have a stable family life if if you're breaking up with your partner every three to four months because you're so freaked out, which is was essentially what I used to do. Right. And so it's like, how do you do that? And at some point you have to figure, I think I had somebody point that out to me where I was like, I can't wait to be a dad. And this was during like the years of, me just kind of still fully like not being good at relationships. And she was like, dude, you can't be a good husband unless you're a good boyfriend and you can't be a good father unless you're a good husband. Like get it together. Wow. She was just like annoyed with me. Like you're out of your mind. Right. But she was right. But she wasn't the person you ended up with, right? Oh no, God, no, I was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right. I mean, some of those early partners have to do a lot of work, right? To, to love well, she yeah. was wrong for me too. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, the, the thing is like I, my wife and I always joke that like we still would be together if we'd have met Aww. before all my therapy. We just would be so much more tumultuous. We, we wouldn't have been able to stay apart though. We both are aware Aww. of that. Like there's something special happened with us and we don't think we really belong with anybody else. But, you know, that I, I think I, I you got to learn to make different choices and I had to learn to make different choices. The whole part of the book where I talk about going to therapy is just being like, you got a landscape in your head. You got to figure out what the landscape is so you know how to navigate it. And for me, my landscape is motherhood, NPD, early trauma, you know, gave me attachment disorder. Here are the things that fuck with me. Got to learn how to reflect on them, how to learn how to talk about them. Got to learn how to recognize them. Got to learn how to make different choices. And it's a slow, excruciatingly slow, frustrating process of change, you know, but it happened. It, yeah. Change, change did happen. And the, the good, the good part about that too, is the hard work you do can last. Like the, I have found that the work that I did in, in a similar respect has endured. I mean, I have to, I have to stay on top of it and I have to watch it, but I, I really feel so, uh, so much like I can relate to what you're talking about because in your case, so my father raised me um, when my mom left and he was a really stabilizing force. And I feel like your father was able to counterbalance your father and Bonnie, who I want to mention come across in the book, so warm and supportive. And I feel like you, you just really, you, you painted a, a beautiful picture of that, a beautiful portrait of that. Um, yeah. And it comes across. And I feel like if, if kids can have at least one force stabilizing 
unconditional force in their life, they might be able to survive this. But when you think about how you wrote about your mom, and I don't know what your relationship is like now, I get a sense of it from what you wrote. But did you have any hesitation in depicting those kind of blurry boundaries when you were writing the memoir? What do you mean by blurry boundaries? Between you and your mom, between you and your mom and like how she blurred boundaries. How she needed you in a way that wasn't appropriate for your age. Yeah. She made me her caretaker. I I think um, it was hard to write about. Uh, It's the kind of thing for those of us who want to be overachievers and I am, make no mistake, an overachiever. Like, you know, there's different ways that kids deal with these things. My brother, for example, was the scapegoat. I was the super kid. You know, there's this, these kind of predictable roles that people take on in difficult upbringings. And my thing was like, I'm going to be up at dawn. I'm going to take care of the house. I'm going to take care of mom. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get straight A's. I'm going to come home. I'm going to take care of all the rabbits so we can eat tonight. I might even cook dinner. You know, like that was, that was kind of how I, I approached everything. And I still do, you know, probably there's so in there somewhere is this abyss of the need of approval of others that drives me to work like 60 to 80 hours a week, which is, you know, we're, we're getting there. Uh-huh. We're getting there. Uh-huh. We're still, still work in progress. But like, I, I think that um, what, so for those of us who want to come across, you know, larger than life, as I have at various points in my life, um, it was hard. It was hard to admit. You know, I've always been a straight A student. If you were to look at my high school yearbook, everybody said, remember me when you're president. Remember mm, me when you're president. Wow. I think up until five years ago, there was still a group of people that thought I should get into politics and run for, you know, city council and then maybe mayor of LA or something like that. And like, I, I it was always kind of like part of my life to appear sort of, I don't know, without um, holes in the armor. And of course that masked like serious cracks in the armor. There was massive cracks in the armor. Um, and so it was hard to write about these things that were kind of the origin of that. It's actually not that hard to write about being five years old and on the run from violence, being five years old and witnessing people getting beat nearly to death in front of you, five years old and escaping a cult. Cause I didn't make any of those choices. You know, it was harder to write about, you know, how I was sort of made into my mom's caretaker. It was harder to write about the ways I messed up relationships as I got older. These things, they have some shame for me. And so... And it and it pierces that veneer, that sort of like that kid's going to be president kind of part of my head that wanted to. And I think we all kind of invent ourselves in a certain respect. And so to just this book was in many ways this unmasking. It was sort of like, well, I invented this guy uh, to deal with the world who's like this Superman. Um, and, you know, it's not really real. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm scared a lot of the time and I'm, I have a really, really harsh on myself and there's a lot of anxiety in there and it's a hard way to live and it comes from these things. So all those things, yeah, they were, they were very, very hard to write about. And my mom crossing boundaries and all the ways that she did easily the hardest. Yeah. And I think that because a lot of times people read memoir to see what the memoirist's role was in their life and how they perceive things that happened to them. And I think what you're you're saying, I, I can understand, is that there's there's one thing about having an account of what happened to you and the life that you didn't choose for yourself, but it changes a little bit. And there's a lot more to think about when you have to reveal what your own foibles are and where your weak areas are. Yeah, well, you can't do one without the other. I mean, I mean, some memoirists do, and I won't name them. But I, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't really buy read it. those. Yeah, <laughs> I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Like you know, memoir can often be this sort of like emotional disaster porn. Yeah, and it's like 
here's all the th-. and it's like oh, I was dragged behind the car by my face for a hundred miles and when I got home I cooked dinner when meanwhile my they were punching me the whole time and then I feel like, like I know which book you're talking happened? about I kind of feel like I know what book you're talking about but yeah go on no no there's I, I'm not talking about any of the really famous ones but yeah. like the because those are great books I, like I, I I it's not that I think that there's anything wrong with those the, telling a book from that perspective what I'm saying is the part where it's like we're just going to gloss over what happened to us as individuals we're going to gloss over what happened to our relationships like my ass everything worked out fine give me a break you you just spent 300 pages telling me about all the ways you were abused and about two paragraphs talking about how everything in your emotional life is totally cool now. Like, no, no, it isn't. Give me the truth. I want the truth. It's a modern world. Readers can smell a whiff of bullshit. And listen, I'm not saying that a book can be good or bad business. I'm saying that's what I'm interested in. I want you to sit in the psychic life. I'm interested in the internal life. So, you know, I want to know, you know, what it actually felt like, what it still feels like, what you went through, because that's what a good memoir is. It's a description of how the world felt. Yeah. So then when you were in it and when you were delving into these parts that are not as fun to really think about, did you have concerns or did you ever feel like, E.B., I don't want to do this? Of course. I was terrified. I mean, the whole time I was terrified. Up until the book came out, I was terrified of it all because it's a big, you know, it's this thing called fear of exposure, you know, and the, and the, the irrational thought that you have is, oh no, if everybody knows this about me, they're going to hate me because then they'll know all my secrets and my secrets will be out. And then because of that, they will hate me. And really it's the opposite that people empathize with you. Um, And I think I've had friends and family in particular who have read the book and said to me, oh my God, I had no idea. I always just thought you were sort of bulletproof. Um, And I, and they've been like, I think it softens me a lot for them. Um, which is sort of a relief because now I just feel like I can kind of be myself. I don't have to think about as much how I'm coming off or what I'm going to say. Like even right now, if we'd have done this interview five years ago, I'd have been much more sort of calculating about what my answers were going to be in that sort of Barack Obama sense where you're like, all right, here's a guy who's been through a lot and he knows exactly what to say. That's Barack Obama, right? He knows Bruce Springsteen's like this too. You know, he'd been through a lot, knows exactly what to say. And I admire those guys. Those are two of my heroes, by the way. So this isn't a critique. I'm just saying, like, I think that's where I landed on sort of this this spectrum at one point of like how to present ourselves to the world. And I kind of just made this decision as an artist, you know, in the process of writing that this book would be an unmasking and um, that I would try to stop performing. And instead of performing, just try to be real. Because I think, you know, if we, if everyone walks around performing and pretending that they're not sort of inventing something, then, you know, it's like the bullies win because everyone's then like afraid they're going to be bullied, especially like with social media and everything. Like everyone's afraid they're going to be bullied. So if everyone walks around putting up these faces and acting like they're less, you know, sort of vulnerable than they are, then the only people who win are the bullies. And I don't, I don't want the bullies to win. I want people to, to understand the stories are complex and I want them to see mine and you know, maybe come to a conclusion that the things that they're hiding don't need to be hidden. Um, and that, you know, uh, empathy is a revolutionary act if you do it right. Mm-hmm. It's like an invitation, I feel, to to take people on this story, this journey of yours is an invitation in a sense, not on purpose necessarily, but to also be able to reveal ourselves, to have courage Absolutely. and to take heart that you're still alive and you're better for it. Um, and it sounds like, I was going to ask you what you think is a quality that you have that enabled you to survive, but I feel like you kind of answered it 
earlier, which is that- What, the crushing abyss in me that <laughs> requires the approval of others? Well, no, the bulletproof, the armor <laughs> part, you know, the like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be like, you know, I, you're the younger child, you know, in my family, I'm the older child and I totally type ate it. I type ate it, older, older sistered it throughout my whole life. Your, your um, kind of family dynamic is a little bit different because you were the younger one and the pleaser and the doer because Tony had kind of a, a bigger- a bigger experience with Sinanon, right? He was there yeah. for longer. And and how is yeah. he right now? He's great. I mean, he's pretty, he's that same guy that you see in the book, you know, the, by the end, he's, um, he's still, he's doing it. I mean, the, the pandemic's hitting everybody hard. So he's stressed out like all of us, but he's still sober. He's, we're still close. I think we're, we, we were going to go on a bike ride tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> like, so he's in LA? Yeah, yeah, he's in LA. Yeah. He lives in the, the house, the Posner house. He bought the Posner house and, yeah. So no, it's, it's, he's doing great. So are you surprised about where you are now? Or do you think that a part of you knew you'd be okay? Oh, that's a great question. I think it, it depends. Um, I don't know if I, I think maybe let's put it this way in my, there was a person I invented at 15 that was just going to win. That was his goal. His goal was to win, get straight A's, get into the best college, win the championship game, whatever it is. <laughs> I was a track athlete. Win the big track meet, you know, um, and to some extent it worked. Um, I did those things. Um, and that guy kept going. And then I kind of ignored the warning signs that up until about 27, 28, I still just couldn't get it together in these other ways, which is like, I couldn't, you know, figure out how to make a relationship work. And I think at a certain point I decided, oh, well, screw it. I'm not going to do it. It was this very sort of like Bukowski-esque, Philip Roth type decision. Like I'm going to just be an artist and that's it. And that's the only thing that matters. And I'm not good at relationships. I'm never going to be good at relationships. And that's not, that doesn't matter because all that matters is if I can write good books or if I can make good songs. And then, uh, you know, as you get older, there starts to be this real shift where like, if you're unsuccessful in this other area of your life, you're just kind of not very successful in life. And I think somewhere, you know, even though at that point I'd had, you know, my writing career had already sort of taken off and then my band took off and all these things and I made some money. And then it was like, it was like, I knew somewhere along the way that this wouldn't age well in my forties and fifties and sixties. <laughs> I was like, dude, I got to get it together. What am I doing, man? <laughs> you know? And I think I was longing for a connection. I, I the short answer is I, I was lonely. And, you know, um, this is something else Barack Obama talks about where he says, you know, he, he, he talked about doing activism. He says it's not prestigious work, but it's also not lonely work. And part of why he was drawn to it was people look like they're having fun together, like there was a community. And that's how I always felt about families. I always felt for the longest time like I would see these families in the park and I'd be so fascinated about how protective people were of their kids, the bond that I saw. And I just felt like this alien creature you know, as I walk by on my way to sound check or whatever, you know, and then you go and you sign some autographs and then somebody asks you what time you want to have whatever food delivered so the reporter could be there at the thing because you got to do that before you go on the show. And like, you know, living the rock and roll, sort of successful rock and roller lifestyle and just be lonely at the center of it. And, you know, it's almost like this world I created and then I got as like pretty far in that world and then realized it wasn't going to solve the deeper problem. And the deeper problem required that I take a look at, you know, these early, early things that had happened to me and try to figure out how to undo or reflect on and therefore change uh, my behavior. Mm. Do you feel like Bonnie always believed in you and Tony? Yes. 
Bonnie was like almost an unequivocal force for good. Bonnie's like a song in the world. <laughs> That's how I always saw her growing up. Um, she was just always filled with light and with love and with support. And she's my ride or die. She's always been my ride or die. That's just who she is in her heart. And that's how she's always been about her boys and about me. We've always had this kind of special bond. Um, and it was kind of cool to come from a Jewish family too. Like I'm a Jew. I, you're a Jew. I know you said you lived in, on a kibbutz, yeah, right? Yeah, that's in right. Israel. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I'm like my, my friends used to joke in college that I'm like the Tarzan of the Jews. <laughs> Wait, go ahead. I'm listening. I walk among them, though I am not. <laughs> I walk among the Jews, though I am Goy. I speak the language. My husband is Goy. not a Jew. He's Irish Catholic raised, but he is. Oh, Catholic, similar, speaking, similar. He's rocking you know. the Yiddish all the time. All yeah. the time with well, the Yiddish. Yiddish is great. He's, yeah. he's here too. So you guys have a lot in common. That's yeah. the Tarzan of the Jews. Um, but okay. I, I was going to write a thing about how like, you know, in Jewish, you know, and it's Talmudic law that like you're a Jew if your mom's Jewish. Yes. And I was raised by a Jewish mother because yes. Bonnie was basically my mom since I was six months old. Yeah. And so like, what makes me not a Jew? How am I not? I, I still, I respond to guilt the same way other people do. <laughs> other Jews do. Jewish men understand this, that you can be manipulated by guilt. It sucks. You don't want to, but you just can't help it because they just implanted this <laughs> thing. It's like the fucking, what's the one with the card, you know, the movie? What am I thinking of? The um, With the Queen of Diamonds and Ooh, uh, there was a Enzo Washington remake where they hypnotize I him. absolutely want to help oh, you God. right now, but I'm so bad I'm at that. Blanket. All right, I'm blanking but right you know now. What? Really um, I accept you as a Jew. I'm sure Bonnie does too. Well, she says I'm more Jewish than she is, but like, I, that's not true at all. I'm not. I'm not Jewish in any way, except for you know how I talk, how I think. It's true. It's true. Culturally, you know, I, yeah, I I used to be an editor, and I used to interact with all my writers, you know, over the phone because they'd be in different cities, and I was in LA. And whenever I'd meet them, they'd do this double take. And I remember one time, like, I'd be like, "What is the double take thing? What is it?" They're like. <laughs> I expect you to be like Jewier. You look so white. <laughs> you look so. You're just like blonde, and you and you got this. So you cute. just look like such a white guy. I thought I was expecting like a Jufro, and like you'd be like 130 pounds. Wow, you're officially admitted. Like you 100 percent can pass. I mean, until someone sees you. <laughs> <laughs> I have. I yeah yeah. I I think I I just I I get I get juice. Yeah. I think we have. I think we're very similar in so many ways that have, maybe it's more to do with culture. It's just, if you're raised in a Jewish family, if you're raised by Jewish people, if you have around a lot of Jewish friends, there's just a certain orientation to the world. And it's something like, we lost a lot, so let's work hard. And that has always made sense to me. I was going to write that, by the way, into a, into a memoir about Bonnie and call it This Goy's Life. <laughs> Which is really funny because actually you've read This Boy's Life, right? Of course, yeah. Well, guess what? I emailed Tobias Wolf last month and he actually what? wrote me back. Uh, he's amazing. I love that book. I read it like four times. Yes. Well, it's on my desk when I'm revising my own work, actually. And, you know, so is your book now. So, okay. So I want to, in the time we have left, uh, do, do you talk to your mom? Uh, Jerry? No, we're, we've been estranged, you know, off and on since I was 19. And we sort of, you know, I tried to kind of bring her around when, you know, um, for a while I kept trying at that relationship. And then at one point I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. It was just too hard. She's just too, just, I, you know, it's like I talk about in the book. It's, it's not, it's not a question of whether I ever loved her. I think I've always loved her. I think that she's never been good at loving us and it's probably not her fault. I mean, she was clearly abused and abandoned in her own way. 
it doesn't change the fact that nonetheless, <laughs> it's still true. And it's just, it, it costs me, it costs me too much. I think that there's a lot in this culture around the idea of forgiveness. Um, and I think it's, it's not that forgiveness isn't important. It's that people jump to forgiveness and they think there's a lot of wisdom in jumping to forgiveness over other considerations. And, you know, people would ask me like, do you forgive your mom for neglecting and abandoning and abusing you guys in all the different ways that she did? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, sure. Okay. <laughs> I, the, I mean, all right. I mean, the question isn't for The question is, can, can people ever truly, the, the abuser, it centers the wrong person. The question to ask is, is because the abuser apologizes, the abuser really wrestled with this, has the abuser changed, has the abuser come to terms with what this was? And in, and in her case, like, no, not once, never. And so it's sort of like, well, what do you do with that? You could say, I forgive you. And then they keep doing the same thing. Right, and right, right. Point, There's no awareness like, or growth on their put part. You at arms, yeah. And you've got to put them at arm's length, almost as a matter of self-preservation, even if you didn't want to, even if you wouldn't, yourself wouldn't choose it, which is ultimately where I landed with her. Well, and another aspect of this, part of part of it for me, what I understand about this kind of relationship is that it's hard to get to a point where you realize it had nothing to do with you. I mean, you know, logically it had nothing to do with you, but, you know, but then once you know that, does that, doesn't change the hurt, but then it changes sort of your understanding of what happened because it's less personal, but it still was a, a leaving and like an absence. Yeah. And in our case, the hardest thing wasn't even, it's a weird statement. The hardest part wasn't the orphanage that she put us in, nor was the hardest part the fact that we didn't have food. And I know that's saying a lot. The hardest part was um, the loneliness. The hardest part was the neglect. The hardest part was her not being at all interested in the emotional world of her boys. That was actually the hardest part. It was the lack of empathy for us, the lack of interest in us as human beings and solely seeing us through the lens of how we can provide her emotional needs, because that's what it means to have narcissistic personality disorder, or in her case, borderline personality disorder that also has some elements of narcissistic personality disorder. That That's just what it means. People with NPD, BPD, these things that are called cluster B mental illnesses, they, they just simply can't reflect. They don't have empathy. And it's very, very hard um, on, on their children. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And even more stunning to be able to survive that and to go on and have a family like for you, like that's. Yeah. You know, in a way I think it was almost like, uh, to my benefit that I was put in the orphanage. My shrink said that once, like I almost put this in the book. I forget why I cut it, but that like, and there's an, there's different attachment styles. Um, and that the attachment style, if your parent is cluster B is really a shaky one. Cause it's very hard for you not to end up with elements of cluster B yourself, though. Not, it's not mm, true for everybody. Interesting. That's definitely not true for everybody, but like that tends to happen or at least have this very, you know, shaky attachment to style. And in some ways, you know, the fact that we didn't even know who she was until we were like four or five or seven in my brother's case, like. Uh, helped us because we were just, you know, we had the attachment style of orphans, which is, you know, attachment disorder <laughs> has all these other problems, but at least there was the ability to reflect. And the problem with NPD, BPD is you can't reflect. And reflection is, the, the it, that's what, that's all psychoanalysis is, it's reflection. So if you don't have the ability to reflect, you don't have the ability to change. Someone in my position, yeah, you start from a really crappy place, but you have the ability to change. Where cluster B people, it's notoriously hard to treat. They just don't change. 
Mm, wow. That's they're incapable of reflection. And that's, that's the key to change is reflection. I, wow. I hadn't thought about it that way. And I, I hadn't even thought, you know, those early scenes where you're in the orphanage are so hard and, you know, I feel so bad for you and also really, really bad for Tony because he was older and had a harder time yeah. dealing yeah. with it. But when you, when you say it that way, that it might've saved you some grief because your mom wasn't raising you at that point. Yeah. That's something I hadn't considered. So, That's just how bad it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. I'm not even mad about the orphanage. <laughs> I'm not a, mad about slaughtering the rabbits. I'm going which... to say that again. I'm not even mad about the fucking orphanage. <laughs> Think about that for a minute, Mom. Jesus. <laughs> you did such a bad job that. Sorry. Uh, no, it's good. You know, it's, it's funny too about your, um, yeah, about people zeroing in on the cult part of it and people zeroing in on the rabbit part of it because it is, it is like those are the things that kind of anchor the story for people who don't know what it's about. But the story is a coming of age, uh, emotional journey, uh, vulnerable journey, and you know, as a, as a singer and a songwriter and being in this band, how is performing this? I mean, I guess I'm not one of those. I'm not a band person, so I don't know what it's like to perform your own music. I don't know how personal it always is, but is there a difference performing this new album that is sort of informed by the book or is informed by the book? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, it's a very personal record that means so much to not just me, but the entire band we worked so hard. We pulled no punches. We spent two years on it. We sort of want it to be like here, this record is a statement of everything we love about music. So there's just a joy in it. Um, not that we've toured yet, by the way. We, I mean, we've oh, only right. played these songs, you know, in 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 our run up to the record. We had it. We did a residency at the El Rey. We did four nights at the El Rey where we brought fans in and we played the songs and you know, so and like kind of took their response to like help us figure out how we wanted the songs to go. And rock and roll, it's called road testing. And like we did a bunch of road testing with, and that was great. So I, I just, I, I will say that I can't wait to perform these songs live on tour because they, they all just feel like so real. They, they all just feel like so devastatingly real that it doesn't require that I adopt any kind of like character. I can just kind of be myself and it, and there's a sort of a connection. Plus the, the response to this record from fans has been tremendous. And so I, I can feel from them that they can't wait for us to, yes. to perform it as yes. well. And it's to listen to the songs, having read the memoir also it makes it, it, it had a bigger impact on me too. I just felt like I'm privy to something that if I hadn't read the book, I wouldn't be that I just was like in your head more. And, um, and I think that that also about the fans, people want to know you, right? Like, I know that's a slippery slope when you're in the eye, you know, in the public eye, but people appreciate knowing who the memoirist is. And that's why memoirs can be so gripping. And people want to know who you are because they've loved your music for so long. And then they get this insight into what made you, you. Yeah, I think that that might be the case. Although I, I don't really care that much. I think I'm sort of desensitized to it after like 12 years of singing really personal songs that, you know, I've written a lot of very personal songs and I, I've kind of made my sort of peace with like, that's, that's what it means to be an artist. You know, it's the Lewis Hyde idea of the gift that you're, you put your, you put your struggle and you put your joy and you put your trauma and you put your love into your art and something about capturing that vitality, um, is revitalizing for other people. I don't know why. It's the same reason why we, you know, you love a movie like Schindler's List, though it's awful, or why you would love a song by Childish Gambino, that like Baby Boy or something, even though it's so sad. It's because you, you, something about seeing that that vitality, participating in the vitality, makes you feel 
alive. And so I've sort of come to grips with that's my role. It's my role in the world, you know, and, and, and so, yeah, it's going to require some personnel, you know, disclosure, but that, you know, th- that my life really isn't that different from anybody else's. I've just sort of chose to make a record of it. Like, and I don't just mean it by music. I mean, like literally like I've made a record of my experiences on this planet that, that even though I've had these other rising things, there's plenty of people growing up in the suburbs, growing up in the inner cities, growing up that are, are dealing with loneliness and parents with mental illness, depression, addiction, poverty, all the things that we dealt with. Um, and they just didn't write books about it. And, and I'm fully you know aware of that. And that the things that are kind of like the most relatable about my book have nothing to do with the fact that my dad was in prison or we escaped the cult. They just have to do with, you know, you're a kid and you're trying to make your way through the world and it's a confusing place. And I think that, that people you wouldn't expect that are walking around dealing with trauma every day are walking around with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more with you. And the fact that some people find some resilience or a way to make it out of there is remarkable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's, it's no different for me. I just wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. So where can people follow you, find you? Where, where should people who want to find you, find you, Mikkel? Your local bookstore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> find an independent local bookstore. Yeah. Um, and um, they will be carrying copies of Hollywood Park um, on, you know, Apple Music or Spotify or, you know, if you want to buy a record, an independent record store for the Airborne Toxic event, the record is Hollywood Park. The book is Hollywood Park. It's available everywhere. My name is Mikael Julie. I feel like I'm on NPR. <laughs> I would love to be, I would love to pretend that we are in NPR right now. Um, <laughs> Today you, on you, our program, Mikael Julie, memoirist, rock and roller. The very song, Jewish non-Jew. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I'm so happy that we got the chance to talk. I, I could listen to to what you've learned all day. And I, I really hope that the people who want to and need to hear your story have found this episode. And thank you so much for putting your work into the world and for sharing this time with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is fun. This is a good conversation. It was great to talk with you. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.